I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Most of you are familiar with the ministry, who are familiar with the ministry, know that in 1997, I had a roadside experience that changed my life, but I remained LDS four years thereafter, and I may have remained longer, but I didn't know what to do. I just kind of kept going to the Mormon church as a regenerated believer, which led me to believe at that time that there are plenty of Latter-day Saints who know the Lord in their heart, but they're not really sure where to go from there. I was a member of a gym in Southern California, and the Lord put three key individuals in my life. Cynthia, who introduced me to Vanessa, who introduced me to Phil Howard. And uh, every one of them approached me in a different way. Cynthia was uh, all about uh, being a prayer warrior and trusting God, trusting God. Uh, uh, Vanessa was uh, very big in talking to me about uh, secular humanism and uh, some of the liberal philosophies that I had embraced. And Phil, he was kind of the scriptorian and uh, he spent time with me bringing the scriptures into my life and helping me as a regenerated believer who still went to the LDS church. Uh, they uh, all had a place in bringing me out and helping me come, become a Christian. Uh, I was a Christian in my heart, but actually a functioning Christian. None of them ever, in the couple years that we associated with each other at that time, said, you've got to leave Mormonism. Not once. None of them. And none of them ever said, come to my church. Come to find out, all three of them went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And, but none of them said, come to my church. They just talked with me and shared with me as the Lord put it on their heart. Oh, I remember one afternoon uh, being at the club, and or actually it was in the morning, and Phil said, what are you gonna do? And I said, I'm, I, I'm gonna go move offices. I was a stockbroker at the time. He said, let me come help you. I was like, wow, all right, come on. So he, he spent like half the day helping me move the office. And I remember asking him a question. I said, tell me, uh, what are the works? What are the works that, that you do as a Christian? I mean, I came from the Mormon background. I knew what works were, but I said, what are the works that Christians do? I didn't understand. And he changed my life and perspective with his answer. He said, 
It's, it's love. The work is love, Sean. As he grabbed a box and carried it down uh, to the elevator and to his, my car. And uh, it really, really, really struck a nerve with me. Um, I had a chance to talk to Phil last Friday a week ago. I told that because of him, this ministry has gotten, gone around the world. Millions of people have uh, learned about the truth of Mormonism relative to biblical Christianity. Tens of thousands have chosen not to join Mormonism or have come out of Mormonism as a result. Thousands have been saved uh, in and through indirectly the Holy Spirit working on them from the information that they get on the, on the program. All because of the work of men of a man like Phil Howard and then Cynthia and Vanessa. I talked to him last uh, a week ago Friday and he was on the phone. I had learned that Phil was sick, had cancer, was fighting it for quite a while. And uh, he said on the phone, Sean, uh, it's grace, 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 grace. It's grace, Sean. It's grace. We, I told him about the ministry, uh, shed tears with him, and our brother passed away uh, Sunday, uh, two days ago. Uh, we dedicate the show to Phil Howard. We love you. We miss you. We pray for Cheryl and your family. And, but uh, we know we will see you. He used to say, I'll see you here, I'll see you there, or I'll see you in the air, and we'll see you then, my brother. Listen really closely. This ministry wants you to know something very important, actually reiterate something very important that we've been saying on the air for years. You ready? There is a direct personal relationship with a God with God available to all people that is completely separate from and totally free of all organized religious input. You do not need a church to know God and you do not need the directions of religious men and women to please him. What pleases him is faith. Don't take my word for it. Go to him with an unfiltered heart and mind and talk, seek him. Pursue him, wait on him, trust in him. He will make himself known. And once he does, you will never, ever be without him again. Wanted to reiterate uh, that to you. Someone reminded me of that the other day and I thought it was important. Got an email from Michelle E. It says, Sean, I have been a devoted Mormon for 12 years. Three months ago, I read the New Testament and realized the Mormon church was not Christ's church. I have been spending most of my time reading the Bible and trying to know my God. I am considering going to a Christian church. I am so grateful for you taking a stand about God and your view on the Trinity. I made sense of the Trinity the exact same way you are explaining him. I am grateful for your stand that they are not persons. It possibly has saved me from becoming confused once I started attending another church. Also, I have always had a war against rules, called me stubborn, and I can explain now with your explanation of culture. Love and thanks uh, for your strength, et cetera, et cetera. God be with you, she ends it. I wanna use Michelle's email to make a couple points. First of all, you notice how she ended her email. God be with you. What a nice thing to say to another person. She took the time to write me. She has read the Bible. She sees and understands God as one who spoke and his word became flesh. 
and that he sent his spirit. He is spirit. He is holy. He sent his Holy Spirit, like the Bible says. She believes in one God, like an all-consuming fire, manifesting himself in flesh and manifesting himself in spirit. I'm sure many of her assumptions are off base, as many of my assumptions are off base. We're only human beings, but here's the thing about Michelle. She is a seeker like many of you, and she believes in him. And she even blessed me in his name. Now, there are actually people out there who have made themselves the police of the faith, who would read that email and tear it apart line by line, even to the point of assassinating this woman's biblical faith in Christ, her Christianity. That's just amazing. Secondly, Michelle came out of Mormonism. Mormonism is not a biblically-based faith. I understand the error of it and the bondage it puts in people, uh, puts people in, and so I can see that it's a counterfeit gospel, and this woman came out of that counterfeit gospel, praise God. That is so important because she has transferred a focus that was on all things LDS to a focus that is on all things Christ Jesus. What saddens me, and saddens me for most seekers, they're a rare breed, is what awaits her, being a seeker of truth. See, when people come out of Mormonism and into a life with Jesus, they are different than people who have been Christian all their lives. They're a very special breed, and a lot of times people don't understand that. Now, sometimes people will come out of Mormonism, go right into a Christian church, assimilate very easily, and that's a certain personality type. But I'm talking about, generally speaking, people who have been steeped in Mormonism, when they come out, they're a unique breed, all of themselves. Highly suspicious of religious chicanery. Um, if she is a truth seeker that I suspect that she is, the road that lies ahead of her can be very difficult if she's not careful. See, what's lurking out there in a different style and fashion is just another form of Mormonism. If, she's, if she is unwilling to embrace the ways of men, she is going to see the responses the same from them. It's those damn faith police again, Michelle. It's those doctrinal Gestapo members who spend the majority of their lives making sure that everyone they come in contact with is in compliance to how they read and understand the Bible to ensure that their religious traditions are passed along and everybody complies. By the way they behave and relate to truth seekers especially, you would think that it's doctrinal positions and theology that saves a person. You would think that you know faith on Jesus Christ is like a side issue. What really matters is what your doctrine and, 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 and theological positions are. So Michelle, my brave sister, let me say this, keep going. And read the Bible, let the Holy Spirit guide. Study it, but more importantly, live it. Be a woman of faith, a woman who loves as Jesus loves. Yes, they are out there, Michelle, people who will sidle up to you and they'll call you sister until you differ with them and then they will turn on you and you'll never hear from them again. Expect that, Michelle. But the Lord who you know loves you and he hears you. He knows you. Trust in that and keep seeking. Keep searching for a deeper and deeper relationship with him based on faith and reliance on him alone. Don't worry too much about understanding totally uh, disputable matters, the scripture calls them, disputable matters. People will try and make it seem like the age of the earth 
and um, you know, worldwide flood, eschatological positions, how many apostles, who were the true apostles, was Barnabas an apostle, Matthias, the ontology of God, it's all that stuff that makes you a true Christian. Don't believe it for a second. I don't think we know anything, to be honest, very, very little. They argue over Bible translations. They'll hold up a King James and say, you've got to read this or you're not saved. They'll argue that you must have the gifts of the Spirit present, uh, that you need to become a member of their church, that you need to commit to them, that you need to be baptized in their church name, that you need to pay tithes. They will give you all kinds of stuff, Michelle. Don't believe it. Worst of all, they will break fellowship with you, my sister, because you don't believe from your kind, soft, Christian heart, how they believe. Forgive them, Michelle. They think they do God's bidding. Like Peter, when he took his eyes off the Lord and looked at the storm, he felt, don't let it happen to you. And when others let you down because you're a seeker, he won't, on this you can rely. And with that, how about a moment from Zawad? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And behold, a white horse. Jesus said something really interesting in Matthew 7. We've talked about it in the past. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Hmm. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few be there that find it. It's kind of a terrifying verse. Why did he say that? Is it true? Perhaps more importantly than why he said it would be the question, what is it about those who actually find the narrow way? I think that's a good question. I mean, how many people who have ever lived and died Muslim, who never, how many of the Muslims stepped away from being Muslim? Ask yourself that. There's billions of Muslims. How many have walked from that faith? But what is it about those few who did see the light, did hear the call, and did ultimately come to worship God in spirit and in truth? Some would say God put, chose them out specifically and that was it. We could say the same thing about Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, pagans, Sikhs, the Baha'i. We could say, how come some come out, those few? And then within the broad sense of Christianity, churches that, that claim Christ, what makes a confirmed lifelong Catholic or Baptist or Methodist or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness leave the faith of their youth with all of its tenets, as it were, and discover the narrow way? We can't say that all find it that would be in conflict with what Jesus said. I mean, let's be honest. I think we can generally agree that most people continue forward with the religious faith they were raised in, right? They have the lens of their faith strapped tightly to their face, and they really have a hard time seeing outside of what they have been taught. We see it all the time with the LDS. 
So again, while the vast majority of the congregates of the whole world, of all the world religions remain clinging to their faith of their youth, what is it that causes the few to enter the narrow way? I have a couple of responses I think are supported by the New Testament. Let's go through them. You ready? Number one, I think those who find the narrow way are those who seek the truth relentlessly. This is kind of a theme in these opening statements tonight. We've seen this evidence time and time again by people who leave the confines of Islam or Mormonism for a relationship with the true and living God. And with awe, we note their courage to walk and remain because it's their courage because they not only walk, but remaining in that faith would benefit them greatly. And to leave it is an end to their life as they know it, so to speak, in, in one way or another. And while the instances of Islam and uh, Muslims converting to the Lord are extreme and fairly rare, the same bravery is manifested when a person who was raised Catholic or in the charismatic faith healing or as a five-point Calvinist or just a, an apathetic Christian sitting in a non-denominational pew it, it, is willing to shrug off all that lifestyle and indoctrination and say, no more, no more. Because the facts and the logic and the reason and the spirit of the living God trumps all the man-made culture and doctrine and tradition that they've been fed their whole life. Listen, these are some really fine lines in the sand, folks. It's so easy to believe that we are seeking God and truth when in reality, all we're doing is validating and justifying our pet beliefs so we can continue to uphold them and feel secure in doing it. But legitimate truth seekers diligently seek him and him alone and could really give a rat's tail what everyone else is saying and doing because everyone else is saying and doing, in my opinion, describes the Broadway. Everyone else is saying, so that's the Broadway. The narrow way will never be the popular way. The writer of Hebrews tells us how God feels about such people. Listen to what he says in Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God, listen, must believe that he is, there's the first thing, and, ready, and, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seeks him. Not religiously seeks him, not blindly seeks him, diligently continues to seek him. The second thing I've noticed is number two, seekers of truth seek at all costs. They seek to cost of life, limb, property, family relations. They pursue and receive the truth no matter what their religious leaders say. And no matter what the law says, no matter what threats of, or alienation they receive in return, they literally understand firsthand what Jesus meant when he said in Luke 17, 33, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. When we think about it, this is truly the price of being Christian back in the apostolic age, all the way out till present day. Constantine established Christianity as a jolly old state faith and people flocked to its benefits, but the seekers didn't. The seekers would have refused such uh, 
uh, participation. True Jesus freaks, true sold out to the Lord Christians would not listen nor seek to placate men and their ideas. They would never try to please the world, pimping for popularity or joining in at building religious empires. Their searches are selfless without guile. They are rarely rewarded by the masses because their search is more for him, more God, less man. The narrow way is not appealing to the masses, even the most dedicated religious masses, because the narrow way does not allow men to enter it walking abreast with others. The narrow way does not allow you to enter it as a group. The narrow way is lonely. It's as lonely as Christ on the cross and respected as much. Such seekers take to heart Galatians 1.10 where Paul writes, listen closely, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Did you hear that, men pleasers out there? The third point I think helps answer how and why few find the narrow way is because seekers of truth do not settle on what they have been given, but continually search for more. They are not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, so to speak, but build upon the foundations that they have been given, but continue to search. Martin Luther, listen to this. He looked at the Catholic Church. He didn't want to, uh, ref- he didn't want to start a new uh, faith. He just wanted, he said, I like certain things about Catholicism, but there's certain things I've got to change. And so he nails his uh, 95 thesis to the door at Wittenberg, and that starts an entire revolution. Unfortunately, those who follow Luther, masses of Lutherans and others, gather under Luther's shadow instead of standing on the shoulders of Luther to reach for more. I'm not talking about making doctrines up outside of biblical authority, but I am talking about dropping the tradition and seeking the single living truth in God through spirit and truth, in spite of the traditions. I don't believe for a second that God has ever wanted people to step under the shadows of other men. I think God wants you to be out in the light with him directly. That's why Christ came. He doesn't want you to become a Lutheran under Luther. He doesn't want you to become a McCranian, God forbid, under McCraney, although the shadow is getting bigger. Uh, he, he, He wants you to be out in the sun with him directly. What we do is we cower under the ideas of others because it feels secure and safe and everyone else is doing it. That's not the straight and narrow way. That's the broad way in my opinion. He wants you to come out from under the shadows of other men and he wants you to seek relentlessly. Finally, genuine truth seekers possess, in my opinion, from what I've seen from them, unconditional love for others. I've noticed that Christian truth seekers always possess this unconditional, self-effacing love and long-suffering with those who do not see the world as they see it. This is what's interesting about them. They will just kind of smile, you know, if, if you say, well, I, I believe in the Trinity. A truth seeker will say, well, that's good, praise God. They don't care. They're full of love. Well, I believe you, you gotta be baptized in, in tempered water, 76 degrees. Okay, brother, that's good, they'll say. They just love unconditionally. There's a humility. There's an admittance that says through almost every word, we don't have all the answers. 
We don't know. And even when we do know, or when they do know, they are long suffering with those who disagree. They continue to love and engage and support and receive, and they, they are internally as loving as the phonies are externally uh, fervent in proclaiming their love. It's really, really interesting that right after Jesus said, straight as the gate narrows the way, few be there that find it, the very next verse he says, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. The world is full of men and ideas, telling us what we need to do to be saved, telling us what we need to be a Christian, what we really need to do to be, do the will of God, but in reality, not one of them have any say on how we should think or feel or believe. Your relationship with God is completely and totally outside of their control and purview. It's between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, we talked about this on Sunday, do you know what all pastors and reverends and ministers are, myself included? We are hirelings. That's what Jesus said. He said they don't own the flock, that's not theirs, okay? The flock in any church is not the pastors, it's Christ. That makes them a hireling. And he says they're hired to do what they do. We are. We get paid for what we do. We are a hireling. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one, good shepherd, capital G. You follow him. Yes, your pastor's there to teach the word. If he's not doing it, walk. But if he's teaching the word, and if he's messing up in that and you don't like it, go. But let me tell you something, we're all hirelings. And that's been lost in this day and age. Pastors seem to think they're, they're above a hireling. They're not, they're just hirelings. And we don't give our life for the sheep. Jesus did, and that's been lost. Listen, be a relentless seeker of truth, my friends. There is no subject that is not worthy of investigation. Uh, but to truly seek doesn't mean that you seek to get your views supported. It sometimes means seek to see if your views can be refuted and brought down. And that's a courageous thing to do and make sure you change when they are. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we want to live this life full of your spirit and living by the truth, only your truth. And so we pray that you open up our minds and hearts to understand it and that we will uh, try to meet some of the criteria we read tonight about truth seekers who are so loving, so willing to sacrifice, so willing to go for the truth at any cost and who relentlessly do it. Be with our audience, be with those who are uh, watching wherever they are, whenever they are, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we covered uh, what I will call the first stage of Mormon soteriology, which we said was getting baptized, confirmed, and receiving a gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands by a proper worthy priesthood holder of the LDS priesthood. We said that this all qualifies a LDS person to enter into the kingdom of God. As an FYI, according to the LDS, there are three basic kingdoms in which a person can enter into after this life. You can enter into the telestial, T-E-L, telestial. That's where all the liars, murderers, adulterers, unrepentant, all those types go, okay? It is a level of heaven. It is a, it is a place. The second level is the terrestrial, the T-E-R. That is where good Christians go, essentially. It's really described that way by Joseph Smith, that men and women who believed in Christ but did not receive the LDS 
ordinances and laws and principles, they will go to the terrestrial kingdom. Much better than the lower. They weren't these liars and adulterers and, and things, but better, but not as good as the celestial, which is the third kingdom. And um, the third kingdom, the celestial, is the highest degree, and that's where LDS faithful members go. Now, when I say faithful, I mean that they enter into that gate by receiving water baptism and being, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands by one of their priesthood holders. Now, take note of a couple things here. First, only people who receive the LDS baptism and Holy Ghost get to even enter in to the highest celestial kingdom. Everything else is below. We'll just make this the celestial kingdom. Everyone else in the world who rejects the LDS way will go to one of the lower kingdoms, period. There's no other way to enter that celestial kingdom unless you've been baptized and confirmed and received the gift of the Holy Spirit by the LDS church. But there's more. Being baptized LDS and receiving the Holy Spirit by the laying out of hands will get a person into the magic kingdom, the celestial, but they will be restricted in the things that they can participate in within that kingdom if they haven't done everything else that the LDS church says. Now, back when Disneyland first opened, there was a price for admission that you paid, and then you would go in, but you have to also buy these tickets, these ticket books. And these ticket books were numbered, were labeled A, B, C, D, and E tickets, okay? And they associated with the ride. The very best rides were the E ticket rides, and then you had D ticket, and then you had C and B, and A was like, you know, you can stand there and stare at the water thing. Here, I'll, but, so you have these different levels of tickets, okay? So, uh, we might liken the, the price of admission into the LDS church as water baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, okay, by an LDS priesthood holder. That's admission into the magic kingdom. But there's all sorts of attractions in the celestial kingdom awaiting those who have the proper tickets, that have the right tickets, with the e-ticket being the ultimate, because if you have the e-ticket in the celestial kingdom, it means you go to the highest level strata of the celestial kingdom, and you get to have sex forever, procreation with your wife, and you get to become a god, okay? But you gotta have the e-ticket. You gotta possess that darn e-ticket to get to that level, all right? Now, many Christian denominations, like the LDS, will say, you've got to be baptized by our denomination, like the LDS say. And they'll say, you've got to show proof that you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues. These things are common. So the LDS entrance into the celestial kingdom, the, the price for that is not very much different than some Christian denominations, okay? But it's at this point that things get very different. And it's at this point that LDS soteriology really becomes a different gospel. And it's up to this point that the hammer falls upon the people. See, the water baptism gift of the Holy Ghost is the price of admittance into the celestial kingdom, but the LDS view that as child's play. That is really just a, a juvenile, infantile kind of thing that everybody does when they become a member. Why can I say that? Because they give that to eight-year-olds. All eight-year-old children, when they're LDS, they get baptized and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by their LDS, and they have received the ticket to enter into the celestial kingdom. That's nothing to a faithful Latter-day Saint. Entering in doesn't mean anything. Oh, it's really nice, and they're starting on the road. But what it means is you, from this point, 
the church begins to process their members through a series of processes by which they increase in spiritual, social, temporal stature. And it's very much based off the Masonic order of how Masons are always trying to get people to go from being good to being the best. It's the same principle with Mormons. So what happens is you're baptized and then a boy, he receives the Aaronic priesthood when he's 12 and he keeps that till he's 18. Then he receives a false Melchizedek priesthood, which he has and he's ordained an elder. And then he goes into the temple to, in preparation to go to his mission. And when he goes to the temple, he receives something called an endowment, which we've shown on the, ch on the station. And the endowment, he is making promises and covenants that are associated with spiritual blessings and promotions. And then when he comes home from the mission, he is supposed to meet a spouse who he takes into the temple and they are sealed, married for time and all eternity. And nobody can get to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom unless they've participated in that sealing. And you can't get the sealing unless you're worthy to enter the temple. And that means paying tithing and obeying the Sabbath day and obeying the word of wisdom. And so it's what they do is they say, listen, you can enter into the church through baptism and will lay the gift of the Holy Spirit upon you. That's Christianity soteriology right there. That's being saved. If, if, if somebody receives the Holy Spirit and is baptized, well, not even baptized, you know, but with Mormons, that's just, hey, we do it to our eight-year-olds. You've got to then work. And this is why we fight against Mormonism. Because all of us who have come out of it know the bondage of being in that game and what it means to have to constantly be working to achieve and make sure that you're worthy to enter into the highest degree of the celestial kingdom because nothing else really matters to a Latter-day Saint. If you can't procreate for eternity and create off spiritual offspring, you're damned, essentially. Nothing else really matters. It's a great fairy tale. So the LDS have to attend all their meetings, they have to do their home teaching, they have to fulfill their callings, they have to clean the church house when asked, they have to bring meals to the sick, uh, they have to uh, do their family home evening every week, they have to give to the church their tithes, but also offerings every month, and then more money if the, if the bishop or stake president says, you know, we have something really special like Proposition 8 in California that we've gotta fight, we need you to step up with some funds here. They did that, and so there's all these obligations. Secondly, we also know what it means to be free in Christ, and that's why we criticize this soteriology. We have been LDS, and we have come out, and we know what it's like to have liberty in Christ. We still battle sometimes with the demons that Mormonism has put in our head of worthiness and, and thinking that we have to say to Jesus up on the cross, hey, wait a second, let me do some of my own suffering and, and my own works, because you're not enough, you know? And people who come out of Mormons, they understand this. And so we are burdened with this kind of, wow, that's still lingering with me. What's going on? And uh, finally, we feel more than obligated to help all these well-meaning people understand that salvation cannot be earned. It has to be merited by the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. We want them to know that according to the Bible, there is no priesthood, that Jesus Christ is our high priest, and we are all priests, women and men, under him. Do the LDS believe Je Jesus suffered for the sins of the world? They do. And that's a great start. Where they say he suffered is another point. But after that, the whole thing becomes a horrible, burdensome, deceptive system built on men.
We hope to free more from its dripping jaws in the days and weeks to come. With that, let's open up our phone lines. We could have some short calls tonight because of a technical difficulty. People are not able to watch us through our website. So it's you YouTube viewers who are there. If you want to make get a call in, uh, please call us at 801-590-8413. Just like the graphic doesn't say. 801-590-8413. And while the operators are clearing your non-calls, Consider this. That's okay, just kind of uh, exclude yourself from the rest of this because it's not going to mean that much to you if you don't believe he did. But if you believe he did, keep listening. Secondly, since he paid for all sin, wiped the slate clean by and through his shed blood, past, present, and future, does sin remain? Think about this. I would strongly suggest no, 
sin does not remain. Sin has been paid for and the stain has been removed and reconciliation has occurred between God and fallen man, period. Does any sin remain? One, that is the sin of, I believe, faithlessness or refusing to believe on and receive what the Holy Spirit is calling to all men to believe on his son. That is why people go to the dark place after this life. There's questions on this. Why people go to hell, the lake of fire, faithlessness, not the carnal sins religious people think is still separating them from God. Now this is radical for some people. They don't understand it. My point in all this is to say the following. The world can be broken down into two types of people. Those who have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who don't. You can discern those who do by their love. Jesus said, by this will all men know you are my disciples if you have love one to another. When believers are congregated together, the sole purpose, in my opinion, is to encourage each other in church, to encourage each other in faith, to strengthen our faith by the hearing of the word, and to grow in our faith and our resistance against the flesh that so easily besets us. The church is there to teach us what living in faith looks like and what it doesn't, but the church is certainly not there to convict believers of sin. It is not there to convict believers of sin. Believers, according to 1 John, cannot sin, okay? We have a new identity in Christ and simply need to become as familiar with that new identity as we have been familiar with our flesh before knowing Christ. We all know what our flesh is capable of doing. We need to become familiar and associated with our new identity. Then the objective is to reach out to those who do not have faith and to help them receive and believe. Everything else, in my opinion, is just plain church. But coming down on people who are saved and believers on their sin, it doesn't have any logical reason. I would love someone to explain that to me if you want to call in and talk. From Sedwick K., he asks, what are the core essentials uh, to Christianity? It's interesting. I used to list seven or eight core essentials to Christianity. Then I went down to four or five. And now I would say an essential to Christianity is to be born from above by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ Jesus, who is the author and finisher of the faith, and then to love. I would say those are the core essentials. Everything else, uh, there's too many debates among the uh, denominations and good believers on those other issues. So have you been born again by the Holy Spirit and has that then manifested itself to love? Nothing else, especially nothing uh, instituted by religious institutions. I have a question on the screen. I'll answer it before I read this sort of long thing. When you were LDS, was there a certain book that could 
get excommunicated. You're spelling excommunicated wrong. <laughs> They've stopped. All right, that's our staff. I want you to know what it's like around here, okay? I just got flipped off in the back by somebody giving me the Phenopole, and another one I think is holding a bottle of something suspicious. This is the staff we got to work with. I would never mention names, Danita, but uh, okay. Now, uh, from Greg in Brisbane, Australia, he says, uh, speaking of the LDS and Jews, he writes, I will never be afraid of these people because they are lost in this mind control of Mormonism, not Jews, excuse me, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. He says, I will never be afraid of these people because they're mind control of Mormonism and Watchtower and need Jesus, and that is all they need. Not a church or an organization, but Jesus alone. And then he thanks for the ministry. He says, if we're ever in Brisbane, let him know. And so we will. It's always exciting to get these ones from out of state. And then we have Paul, who's LD, uh, our LDS. He writes, I grew up in the reorganized LDS church, also known now as the Community of Christ. The RLDS was formed after Joseph Smith Jr. died. The RLDS prophet was Joseph Smith Jr., the, Joseph Smith III. Uh, and then he goes on to talk all about the RLDS. And uh, he says, could you do a show to compare uh, uh, the, the difference between the RLDS and the LDS church here in Salt Lake City. He believes that the LDS here in Salt Lake City were greatly influenced by Brigham Young and what he did. And so uh, uh, I wanna tell you, we've already done it. I don't know the show, but we've already uh, done it. And then uh, this plays right into our show tonight. Rob writes, first I wanna thank you for your, uh, goes on, thanks for Mormonism, uh, the show and reaching Mormonism. For several years I've been a non-active member of the Mormon church. I've attempted several times to become a good standing member only to ultimately give up their, give up under the unsurmountable pressure and requirements. I mainly question the law of tithing, the high degree of vol volunteerism and cruelness of the members. To me, the 10% club, as I've come to call it, assures you of a certain status level within your respective ward stake. Not being part of the 10% club pretty much assures isolation and ostracization for not only yourself, but for the rest of your family. The pressure and guilt brought on by annual tithing reconciliation meetings was almost unbearable. I've never been against supporting charities or causes uh, that I believe in, but I could never understand why my spiritual social salvation was tied to such a physical item. Not only does the church require 10% of your gross wage, God doesn't pay taxes or health insurance, they require a very high degree of volunteerism. Remember, this is all those works. How anyone can spend time with his family when he or she is bound to church callings, plannings, committees, home teaching, nightly praise, morning prayers, etc., etc., etc. The last and most personal point is the cruelness witnessed by good standing members of the LDS church. I've watched Bishop's sons beat my autistic brother on a daily, uh, and myself on a daily basis for defending him because he was different. I've seen my father ultimately become an atheist after facing some, the same isolation and ostracization, I can't say that word tonight, than they do. 
My wife now faces the same cruelness from her own family because she has a job that requires her to work on Sundays and nights. They stand in judgment over her because she doesn't stay home to can vegetables, take care of the kids, or succumb to all her husband's needs. We've pretty much exiled ourselves from family because of the constant judging and pressures of returning to the church. Learning about what type of person Joseph Smith actually was only furthers my disgust. I want to thank you for providing the content and online resources. I found them very enlightening over the years. Keep up the good works, Rob. He just, he just validates exactly what we were talking about with soteriology. Yeah, you can go, you can be baptized. Yeah, I'm a member of the church, it means nothing. You've got to then uh, uh, participate in that club. We're going to Dan in Utah. It says, Dan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, right, I've got a quick uh, comment. Uh, I was just wondering, as a saved uh, individual, the sin is no longer applies to you. And, uh, you know, I guess it says, in scripture that there is uh, no condemnation to those in in Christ and yet we read that the Lord chastises his children those he loves so there, there's a chastisement that, that occurs I think you know with sin or with some type of uh, sin and I, I understand not going to men before men you know take it to the Lord and that personal relationship with your father with Abba but, but why um, you know, if there's no condemnation, there is that chastisement. And I'll just take the answer off the air. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Um, I would say that the chastisement does not necessarily refer to sin. If a, if a believer, and look at here's the thing about the sin deal. If they're, if they're living and walking by the Spirit, that's where you can't sin. If you're living by the flesh, you've resurrected the old man, and you're letting the flesh rule over the Spirit. That's when sin is occurring in the flesh, but that's not who you are. You're the spirit man now. That's why I say you can't sin when you're walking by the spirit and there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus in those who are walking by the spirit. But let's say there's a, a believer who is slipping in and he's let his flesh rise up and he's, he's committing adultery and he's not repenting about it and he's living in an adulterous affair. Uh, the Lord may chastise him and bring him to his knees from that because he loves him. He's one of his sons and he's just letting him know, go back to living by the spirit. Don't let your flesh reign. However, I, believe, I don't believe that verse is talking about chastisement for sin. I think that was paid for by Christ. I think that's what Christ suffered for for us. I think the chastisement is us learning through difficulty to die to ourselves, to learn to love. And chastisement comes by by suffering with not being popular or not the world not loving you or, 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 or whatever it is that God wants for you, you know? That's the chastisement that the Father will put upon those children whom he loves. And be, it's just like with my younger brother. I put my younger brother through a lot of chastisement as a young man. And, and I would take him and cause him to do arduous, painful, physical things to toughen him up. It was not at all because I didn't love my brother. It was because I loved him. It wasn't because my brother was sinning. I wanted to beat it out of him. He was a good guy. I wanted him to toughen up for the things he was going to do in his life and the things he desired to do. That's the chastisement I think that we're talking about. Because it was, it was for our sin that the chastisement was laid upon Christ. So I am not sure that God is up there chastising us if we're gonna use that word in the literal English way of meaning punishing us for failing in our flesh. I'm not sure that that's what he's doing. And that's just some thoughts on it. We have Drew from Stafford, Virginia. 
Drew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing today, Sean? Doing well. How are you? Doing pretty well. Um, you, you did answer my email, and uh, I thank you for it, but there was also a, a question that I asked that I still don't understand, and that's about 1 Corinthians 15.29, where Paul speaks about baptism for the dead. Yeah. Um, reading it through, obviously he's talking about resurrection, and it would be a moot point if there wasn't a resurrection. Right. However, I, I don't understand what is he talking about. Is, is it some pagan practice that was in place around the Corinth church, or were they practicing baptism for the dead? Okay, here's the deal. One, it's one of the most debated passages in the New Testament, and there are about five standard responses that try to explain it. But I think after years of being with the LDS who used that scripture, I think I have contextually uh, found, not my own, I've read this, the best one. And let me try to explain it, okay? Let's say that they were baptizing for the dead. It was a pagan practice. Okay, that's one thing. That's one example. And Paul was just using, referring to them. The, the other thing is Paul is always referring to believers as we, 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 okay? Yes, and he refers to them as they. Yeah, so there's a second response, that he's talking about the pagans. If there's no resurrection, he says to the Christian believers, then why are those pagans baptizing for the dead? If the dead don't rise at all, why are they doing it? That's another example, okay? But here's the one I think that's better. The Christians were under great persecution. They were losing their life over their faith. They were being put to death. And there is a belief that when one was being killed, being persecuted for their faith, and another one is being baptized, almost replacing that member in the body, they were calling, why are you being baptized for the dead? Now, I know this seems like a stretch, but let me explain why I believe this. Paul says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Meaning, why are we continuing to suffer and be killed? And, you got, and, they, and, and they just keep baptizing new people only to be suffered and killed, baptizing new ones for the dead who have been, who have been killed and taken from this earth. Why are they doing it if there's no resurrection? Contextually, I like that, I like that definition the best, but I'm not saying it's, it's absolutely correct. I just prefer that when we look at the context. Why does he add, and why are we standing in jeopardy every hour if there's no resurrection? Does that make any sense? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I mean, I've got uh, missionaries coming to my house, and I speak with them all the time, and I share the word with them. And your show has been a great, a great help because I try to do it out of love and show them in the scripture, but that, that's one scripture that kind of sticks in my craw because I really don't know what it means, but I'm pretty positive that it doesn't mean that you're posthumously baptizing people into your faith. Right, and uh, admittedly, see this is where Joseph was a genius. He would go and he would take out a really difficult passage and he'd build, build an entire religious superstructure upon it. And that's what he did with that one. Well, don't, don't people in the Latter-day Saints Church look at the context of, of what the whole passage says? No. 
They, they just pluck that one verse out and go, aha, here it is. Oh, all through it. When they talk about a book coming from the dust in Isaiah, when they talk about uh, the book being given to somebody and he can't read it because it's a sealed portion, all uncontextual. When they talk about Jesus saying, are you not gods, uncontextual. They do not read context. They search selectively and then they apply it. That's where, you, that's where you're gonna face your battle, but in love, those missionaries, you're planting seeds that will not return void, my brother. Don't give up, keep doing it. Oh, well, I'm, I'm gonna try to. I mean, I only do it out of love because I hate to see people deceived. Awesome. Keep going, Drew. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Okay, bye. Bye. I don't know what this gizmo is up here, but all right. We're going to Crispin, Casper, Wyoming. Hello. Hey, Chris, you're on the air. All right, a uh, question for you. Yeah. Uh, I want your thoughts on this. The laying on of hands with Mormonism. I've, I've been told lately that there's a difference between, uh, I want to know where they get this from, the, the witness of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit are two separate things, and I've kind of argued, you know, like Acts 2, Acts 10, is, you know, proving that wrong, but supposedly it's a witness is what they're saying. What's your thoughts? Yeah, they, they believe sort of like uh, we would believe the Old Testament the Holy Spirit worked upon people and that's the witness of the Holy Spirit and that's what they'll say to people who are learning their lessons. Can you feel the Holy Spirit here? Do you sense the Holy Spirit? The gift of the Holy Spirit is placed upon you by, the, by their priesthood leader and that is conditionally given to you. That Holy Spirit, that gift, will come and go predicated upon your worthiness to have him with you. And so that's the difference between the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, I mean, where, where, I mean, where are they getting this? Is this something from Joseph Smith? Yeah. Or? It's all from Joe. <laughs> yeah, it's all from Joe. Joe. It's all from Joe, Joe. And, uh, uh, you, you know, and they use, they use uh, passages from Acts where you know they will lay hands and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. They'll pull that out and use it on you, as you've probably found. But they ignore they ignore the passages where the Holy Spirit came upon people, where there was no hands laid, where there was no baptism performed. I mean, Jesus breathed out of his mouth and his apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in the Gospels. They ignore all that stuff. Yeah, notice that. So. Yeah. I mean, like I said, they just keep going back. Well, it was a witness. They didn't actually receive the gift. Yeah. So, keep going, you know. my brother. Keep sharing. All right. Appreciate it. Okay. Keep sharing, not keep sharing. I'm sure his wife doesn't appreciate me right now. Let's go, unless her name's Sharon. Let's go to Robert in Florida. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, doing good. Hey, I have a quick comment about uh, the baptism for, for the dead. I was Mormon for 20 years, and my understanding is that Paul is referring to It's probably not the correct way to say it, but there was a town about 50 miles east of Corinth. It's called Eulsis, and the pagans were baptizing for the dead huh. there. And my understanding is, is he's referring to that, but I mean, I could be wrong. Oh, so when he says they, he's pointing to, possibly to that. Yeah, yes, because the Sadducees uh, were above the Pharisees. They believed in the afterlife, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. That makes sense. And it was either the Sadducees or 
the, the town of Yulsif, and, and again, I'm not probably not saying that correctly, but mm-hmm. my understanding is it's either the Sadducees or those people. So, Hey, Robert, really good insight. Him. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, but my question is um, concerning the books of the Bible. You had mentioned, I guess it was last week or a couple weeks ago, about why the we have certain books. Um, and the same, I guess, type of men that uh, were the church fathers, Arrhenius and Polycarp and things like this, were the same type of men that decided which books went in the Bible. And what about the apocryphal books that, uh, and then and then the extra books like the Book of Mary and Mary Magdalene and Philip? Um, how do we know that what we have is complete? In your in your opinion, while uh, again the same type of men that I hear you kind of rail against are the same type of men who decided what yeah. went into the Bible. Well, the way I understand it, Robert, and we're, we're out of time, but the way I understand it is it's kind of like, uh, just imagine a funnel, like we would pour oil into a car. And at the top, they would take all ancient manuscripts and they would sift down and then they would take the ones that had apostolic uh, authorship or supposed, and then they would shift it down and keep those. And then they would take those that had a continuity of content. And if they had one that was 99% uh, contiguous with the other books, but it said suddenly in it, and Jesus rode in on a wild goat, uh, they would probably say, nope, that one's out. They would have to be contiguous when it came to content. And that's how I've understood and been taught, reading Geisler's books on it, that that's how we, how we got the Bible. But you know, your question's a good one, and I'm sure there's good content in a lot of those books. Um, it's just, you know, are they necessary to be involved in, included in the Bible that we have now? I don't know. All right, great. One last thing, I, I Mormon, I'm, I'm go to a United Pentecostal Church, which is you know a oneness church, and I just got to tell you, you're as close to being a UPC oneness without actually being one <laughs> as, as humanly possible. So I that is not helping that. my reputation at all on Disgrace Book. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Robert, your reputation's good with me. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, Robert, uh, listen, I love you, brother, as a UPC or as a whatever. Love you in the Lord, and uh, we'll, we'll figure all this out when we're on the other side, right? Thank you. Yes, we will. I hope so. All right, my brother. Thanks for calling. Bless you. Have a good evening. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel.